You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Um, I'm going to get you to turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew 2. And as you're turning there, I've been hesitant to say anything about the number of churches that closed their churches on Christmas Day because the Christmas because the Lord's Day is on a Christmas Day, because I don't want to come across as we're beating our chests around here, look at us, we're the church that opens on Christmas Day, that shouldn't be the case. It's just God's command us to worship and rest one in seven days, and so we're just doing what the church has always done, so we need not puff ourselves up or come across that way, but I I do want to say something about it, as we gather this morning, because I don't understand why they do that, and I think it needs to be renounced, is a terrible testimony to our Lord, where many of the churches say, well, we we think our people should have, you know, the opportunity to unwrap gifts or eat cheap candy and drink coffee, because that would be better than going to church. And they say, well, we want to give our pastors a break. Um, well, the thing is, we give our pastors a, a break too. The staff has this whole week off after Christmas, and the reason is is because we think that Christmas service is so important, and that Christmas Eve services are so important, that we, we think the staff should put a lot of effort and a lot of work into it, and then take a break when the effort and the work's done. But what is it saying to an onlooking world when you want to forsake the worship of Jesus Christ because you think that eating cheap candy with the kids is a better alternative? It's saying it's a terrible testimony, and it is teaching terrible lessons. Some of them will say, well, the people won't come if we open our church on Christmas Day. Well, there's a reason the people won't come. Because you have, through your ministry, clearly taught them that, you know, church isn't important. And if, you know, you just don't wake up one day and say, hey, we're going to close church on Sunday because people are going to unwrap gifts. There's something that's gone into creating that mentality. And there's years of sowing that have gone into that. And it is a really bad testimony. And I think a lot of those pastors who are making that decision... Those decisions should probably take a lesson or two from the people who are plowing snow this morning. Because there's a lot of men out driving snow plows and going without their time with their kids and their families because they think that the serving the community is a better thing to do at this very moment. Because people need to get on the roads, ambulances need to get on the roads, fire trucks might need to get on the roads, and people need to get on the road to visit their family and get to church. And maybe those pastors ought to quit their jobs, I think, and find jobs plowing snow or maybe serving coffee at Tim Hortons because there's people at Tim Hortons right now who are serving coffee on Christmas morning. And they understand that, you know, one day a year to open presents is not the end all and be all. I'm all for opening presents. We'll go home today after church and have a meal and open some gifts with the kids, and I think we should bring gifts and, and bless each other that way. If that's your family's tradition, that's great on Christmas morning. But it ought not interfere with the worship of Christ. 
fact, I remember when I was a kid, my grandma told me that on Christmas morning it was very different than for her when she was a kid than it was it is for us because they would get up and before they would exchange gifts, they would go to church, whatever the Christmas day was. And not only would they go to church, then they would listen, I guess it was to the king's address, to the nation, and then they would open their Christmas gifts because there were things that were more important than that. So I don't understand the mentality. In the past, I've been more, I guess, patient towards that mentality, but I've become less patient towards it as, as I've seen the way the churches have carried on over these last you know, few years. Um, but... Needless to say, I've, I, I was hesitant to say that. I already said that. I was hesitant to say that because I don't want us to be puffed up. We shouldn't be puffed up over that. But we should grieve over the fact that such behavior is going on. We should mourn over it. And we should pray that God gives these people repentance um, for the bad testimony that they're leaving in their communities. And the terrible teaching that's going on to the children in the church and to the families and the people in the church by indicating that, hey... Exchanging gifts is more important than the worship of Jesus Christ. Are you kidding me? Jesus deserves his honors. And so I, I'm, I'm so glad to be here with you to bring honor to our Lord. And I hope that our act of faith in doing so will bring him much honor and he'll find pleasure in what we're doing here this morning. So let's put that behind us. Um, I've said what I wanted to say. And I want to talk today about a story in the Christmas story, a part of the Christmas story that doesn't get a lot of attention at Christmas time, and really it's one that we don't talk about much, but it needs to be talked about because I think there's some lessons for us, and it points to the significance of Christmas nonetheless. We talk about, and rightly talk about, and sing about, and rightly sing about the glorious appearance of the angels over the shepherds that were tending their flocks by night. We rightly sing about and rightly talk about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, his incarnation. We rightly talk about the wise men that came to visit and pay him homage and worship for what he, who he was as a baby. And so many more stories in the Bible uh, that point to this Christmas story or that are about this Christmas story, but rarely do we talk about is the people are celebrating and glorifying God for the amazing things he's done. It's almost like he awakens something in the truly regenerate people at Christmas time on the first Christmas. There's something that awakens that hadn't happened before as all of this worship breaks out. But is something glorious awakens in the people and the angels are calling the people to worship at this manger in Bethlehem, Satan rises to the occasion also and launches a terrible attack against the people of God at Christmas time, which is the worship of God's people, points to something significant happens. The vicious backlash from the wicked one, the evil one, also points to something significant happening at this time of year. So let's look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 through 18. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Or when they, sorry, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother 
and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region, who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Bow with me for a word of prayer. Oh God in heaven, we come to this text and are reminded that this is just as much a part of the Christmas story as any. And so we pray that as we examine it, that you would point us to the greatness of King Jesus, that you'd work in our hearts, that you'd strengthen us, Father, to be faithful to you, and that you would see to it that we are sanctified and that people are saved this morning. As folks have come into the church who no doubt do not know Jesus Christ, we pray that they'd be saved this morning. Oh, would it be so? Would you guide the preaching? Would you empower the preaching and the hearing? In Christ's name, amen. So we often forget that the Christmas story ends with tragedy. It ends with tragedy. Did you hear me? It ends with tragedy. This is the last part of really the Christmas story is the tragedy. And when the wise men arrive in Jerusalem looking for Christ, it provokes King Herod towards insecurity and anger because he perceived and rightly perceived that allegiance to Christ is an attack or it's an affront on his arbitrary power. After all, the wise men, we are told in the Christmas story, were looking for a king, and this greatly troubled Herod. So in verse 3 of chapter 2, it says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And by the way, all Jerusalem with him was troubled. People were troubled that there was a king on the scene and the true king had been born. So the first reaction to Christmas by the powers that be in Jerusalem was not a welcoming of the king, but being troubled over the arrival of the king. After inquiring of the religious leaders, Herod sends the wise men to Bethlehem to find where the king was. The religious leaders rightly looked into the scriptures and found that the king would be born in Bethlehem. And so Herod sends the wise men on to Bethlehem and says, hey, go look for the king there. And then what he does is he tells them to come back and talk to him when they find the king because, as he says, oh, he's lying, but he says he wants to worship the king too. So come back and tell me about this king. Well, after they worshiped the king in a dream, an angel, or at least they were warned in a dream, the wise men were warned in a dream, they worshiped Christ. And so what they do is they return another way. Herod wanted to 
destroy the king because he was a threat to his throne. And in attempting and wanting to destroy the king, he says, hey, come back and tell me where the king is and, and I'll go worship him. But really, he doesn't want to worship him. He wants to go kill him. And so the wise men, instead of going back and telling Herod where the king was, what he does is, or what they do is they go back another route, and the text says they actually tricked Herod. He was tricked by the wise men, verse 16 says. Then Joseph receives a vision or a, a visit from an angel, and he's told to take the new child, the new baby, Jesus, and flee down to Egypt. So he's got to get out of, I mean, you think about Mary and Joseph's plight over those few years as this Christmas story unfolds. They had it. The, the first Christmas was not warmth sitting by the fire and opening presents, um, really, for Mary and Joseph. The, all, all the fun times that you and I enjoy, the candy and the, the good meals and everything. I mean, they, they're in a barn, right? That's where the baby had to be delivered. And then they find out that Herod wants to kill their baby. And then Joseph gets a dream at night, and the angel says, hey, flee to a foreign country. You know, they don't speak your language down there. We don't know whether there's a job waiting for you down there, Joseph. We know that Mary and Joseph aren't people of means because they had to hide in that manger. So get yourself up and flee down to that foreign country to protect this Christ child. And so they're under a tremendous amount of pressure, and they make their way down to Egypt. And this is tragic in and of itself that they have to flee Israel. That's how bad Israel's become. And history tells us that Herod, so we're not surprised by this given what history tells us, was a terrible man. He actually began his reign by killing thousands of Jews at the Passover. And here, in genocidal mania, he kills what some to believe, believe to be 14,000 Jewish boys under the age of two because he wants to make sure he snuffs out this Christ. And so the first Christmas story, as much as we appreciate all the great things that happened on that Christmas day, and there were great and glorious things that happened during that Christmas time and that Christmas season, is heaven was rejoicing, hell was infuriated and was seething with terrible anger. And so you go from a high to a low very, very quickly in this Christmas story. The three wise men worship Christ and they offer him gifts and they leave. And then the boy has to be taken down to Egypt. The Christ child has to be taken down to Egypt. And thousands of Jewish boys are murdered by a vicious tyrant. That's the first Christmas. We don't concentrate on its tragic ending very often, do we? Here's my message today, and here's what I want you to learn today, because I think I'm going to focus on this prophecy in verse 18, where it says, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. Here's what I want you to learn today. There's a few points you'll learn, but here's what I really want you to take home, is that weeping comes before joy, and joy follows weeping. That's what this prophecy is pointing to. I'll explain it to you in a moment. But if Christmas teaches us anything, it's that weeping comes before joy, okay? And weeping leads to joy. Joy follows weeping. 
In fact, Jesus starts out his ministry by preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount has started out with the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes tell us that blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who sow with tears shall reap with joy, the Scriptures tell us. And so this text, this prophecy that's recorded for us in Matthew 3.18, that really ends the Christmas story. I mean, it goes on a little bit to tell us that after Herod died, Joseph moved the family back to Israel, but even then it wasn't a safe time in Israel. But that's kind of just to wrap things up. The Christmas story really ends with this terrible scene in Bethlehem with all the parents who had newborn sons losing their sons. I'm going to zero in on this particular prophecy, and the prophecy points to the inconsolable weeping of the mothers of Israel, especially this region of Israel. It's a prophecy, actually, that has intrigued me since I preached on it years ago in 2018. I preached on it in the spring of 2018 for a while because I wanted to dig into it more since then, so that's what I did this week as I dug into it a little bit more revisit it and try to understand it a little bit better, which I think I have, and I hope to explain that to you. Despite the horrifying way the first Christmas ends, and despite the bitter scene that emerges here with this prophecy, I do think that this prophecy offers hope to a world that is raw because of sin. Other people's sin, your own sin. This, this prophecy offers hope to a world that is raw because of sin. It's in pain because of sin. I'm going to explain the prophecy. I'm going to show how it applies. And I, I think actually as much as it's a prophecy, what it does is it shows how God works typically throughout history. So there's a typical way that God works with his people. And the typical way that God works with his people, is, as I said, is that Weeping leads to joy, and joy follows weeping. That's the typical way that God works. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I'm going to explain it. I'm going to show how it's, it, it's demonstrated several times in several stories in the Scripture, and then I'm going to offer some application. But let me explain this prophecy to you. As I read it, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The context, of course, is the bitter scene and the bitter sorrow that overcame the mothers of Bethlehem. Ramah was a city near Bethlehem in Benjamin, and so the weeping would have touched that area, and there wouldn't have been likely a family that hadn't been touched by the weeping. Everybody knew someone that had died that Christmas time. Everybody knew someone that had died. And most people were related to someone that had died, and most people likely would have had someone in their home that had died that Christmas time. Rachel, of course, Ramah is the city near Bethlehem, and Rachel, of course, is the mother of Benjamin and Joseph. She's the wife of Jacob, the mother, a mother of Israel in Israel, and she's long since dead by this point in biblical history. And what this is saying is it personifies the weeping here. She personifies the weeping here. So it's one thing to say everyone in the land is weeping, but it's another thing to say that one of the matriarchs of the family from thousands of years ago is grieved by what has happened. That's how bad it is. 
So it really drives and it, it, it really hammers the nail in when you mention that Rachel, who's long since dead and gone to be with the Lord and is buried in the ground, when it says that she is weeping inconsolably, it is personifying the weeping in a very real and raw way. Of course, Rama, the city of Rama, is in Benjamin. It borders Judah. So appropriately, she is named because she is the mother of Benjamin. She's the mother of Benjamin. Weeping in loud lamentations, the text tells us. Weeping for her children. Refuse to be comforted. They are no more. Meaning they're gone. They're gone. Rachel expresses inconsolable grief for on behalf of the region, on behalf of the death of all of these children. Some assume 14,000 in all. We note that Herod, King Herod, who had these children murdered, was an Edomian, meaning he was a descendant of Esau, descendant of the Edomites. He had the favor of Rome to rule in that area. And so this is an act of foreign aggression towards the children of Israel. It's a sign that they're under foreign rule, and it shows and demonstrates how brutal that rule is. And so that's the context, and that's an explanation of that passage within its context. That's an explanation of that passage within its context. Now what I want to do is I want to explain it furthermore in the context of Jeremiah 31, where it comes from. So I'm going to look at Jeremiah 31 for a little while as I explain this passage in even more detail. The quote itself comes from Jeremiah 31, 15. And so this is what Matthew's quoting. Matthew's quoting Jeremiah 31, 15. And Jeremiah's ministry was one of gloom. Ministry is often gloomy because you're dealing with, with people's sin and you're seeing the consequences of it. And Jeremiah himself had a ministry of gloom. And so Jeremiah 31 verse 15, he says exactly what we just read in Matthew or near to what we just read in Matthew. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Jeremiah's ministry was one of gloom. Northern Israel was conquered by the Assyrians a hundred years before Jeremiah's ministry. So all the tribal regions except for Judah and Benjamin were completely wiped out. So in their recent memory... They'd seen a good portion of their population taken away and the lands invaded by the Assyrians. So this is the context. That's the backdrop of Jeremiah's ministry. Jeremiah preached in the southern kingdom, which was still in existence, but which was in decline and was rushing into judgment. Under the context or the constant threat from the Babylonians and the Egyptians, Jeremiah prophesied, and his job was to prophesy of the coming disaster that would come unless the people would repent. And eventually he lived to witness 
Jerusalem destroyed in the 6th century before Christ. As G. Campbell Morgan said about the times of Jeremiah, the times were days of darkness and disaster. And so Jeremiah 31 verse 15 records the great mourning of the people while also within its context indicating that God will take their mourning and turn it into joy. So verse 15, the mourning is really highlighted in Jeremiah 31. But for the rest of the chapter, the promise of God to comfort their sorrow is highlighted. So when Matthew quotes Jeremiah 31 verse 15, in the context of of the children being wiped out in in, in, uh, in Ramah, in Bethlehem, when Matthew quotes that, he quotes it, he's a, he understands the Hebrew Bible, he quotes it knowing what the rest of Jeremiah 31 says. And the rest of Jer- Jeremiah 31 speaks to God's eventual and final and ultimate deliverance of the people and the joy being restored. So, for example... If you're in Jeremiah 31, you look at verse 4. At the end of verse 4, it says, Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines, and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy fruit. Or in verse 9, their weeping will turn or their, their weeping will, God will lead them in their weeping like a father. In verse 9, he says, I will make them walk by brooks of water. He's going to bring them refreshment. In straight paths, so they don't, won't stumble. They're not going to be falling over themselves anymore in their sin. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hey, Ephraim, being the firstborn, and representative of those who descend from Joseph. The morning will turn into joy in verse 13. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will give comfort. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. So their their sorrow and their mourning is going to be exchanged for gladness. The mourning will turn to joy. And so all of this precedes verse 15. So, So if you're reading Jeremiah 31 in context, verse 15 almost slaps you. Because as you're thinking about the future that God's promising to Israel, this glorious future, verse 15 draws you back into the original context of Jeremiah 31, where he's speaking to a nation whose destruction is imminent. Because the sin is rampant, the economy has been destroyed and gutted, and the people are miserable, and the foreign armies are just waiting at the border, sharpening their knives. And so verse 15 is a little bit of reality. It's a dose of reality. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they owe no no more. And so this brings you back to reality. But what is going on in the background is God is preparing the people for glory. Beautiful times that are yet to come. Verse 17 we see the hope is still there for the future. So he, he, he talks about the glory to come, then brings us back to reality in verse 15. 
And then for much of the rest of Jeremiah 31, he again starts talking about the glorious future that awaits the people of God. So, for example, in verse 17, it says, There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to your own country. Notice that comes on the heels of him saying that Rachel is grieving for her children. She won't even be comforted. Her grief is so terrible. And then this says that they're coming back to the country, and the country will soon be inhabited by the people again. And this, of course, you go on and you see this glorious prophecy in verse 31 of Jeremiah 31 of the new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And it goes into the nature of the new covenant, which I've talked about in the past. Jeremiah watched, as one commentator said, his own people, whom he loved with the tenderness of a woman, plunge over the precipice into the wide, weltering ruin. This is what he, like, he was watching his people go over the cliff. Everyone's running towards the cliff. It's funny, we were in court this past week, and I, I didn't go down to Toronto to watch the, it play out. I stayed here, and, and Pastor Will and I watched a little bit of it on the, on the internet. Some of you might have watched it. But there was an interesting moment on Tuesday where our, our, our lawyers defending our actions for opening our church during the lockdowns, and, and the judge starts to talk about, you know, every other judge in this country has ruled against these lockdown resistors, right? And the judge says to our lawyer, so are you telling me, something to this effect, are you telling me that everyone else is running over the cliff? And our lawyer, just without missing a beat, says, yep. <laughs> but this is what Jeremiah is watching in his day. The whole country's running over the cliff. And then yet in the middle of this, God is offering hope. And it wouldn't end in sorrow. It would end in joy. Okay? The, the, the sorrow wasn't the end of it. There's hope yet. Calvin commented on this. And he said, they saw the whole land was almost consumed by God's vengeance as though a fire had raged everywhere, and yet they still followed their own gratifications. They wouldn't learn. But it wasn't going to end that way. There's still hope yet. Calvin continued on his commentary on this. It's worth repeating what he said. So grievous was the time. The country possessed by the sons of Benjamin, had been reduced to desolation so that the mother, as if bereaved of her children, pined away in her lamentation as nothing could afford comfort or her comfort. But that wouldn't be the end of it. Jeremiah is telling us. There's hope yet. And, and so Matthew repeats Jeremiah 31, verse 15, which is the reminder of reality. It's what it is. Jeremiah is describing this glorious future of fertile soil and blooming farmland and prosperity and peace and flourishing families and children playing together in the, in the streets afraid of nobody because there is no evil. And it's almost like the people are consumed in this rapturous vision of heaven. And Jeremiah goes back to verse 15 and says, but this is the reality you're living in right now. 
And that's what it does in the Christmas story, by the way. Because you got to remember that the people that had gathered to worship the Lord Jesus Christ on that Christmas day were a very, very, very small minority of people. There was a handful of them. If you were here last night, there was such a bad snowstorm, there wasn't a lot of people at church. There was more people at church than there were worshiping the Lord Jesus on that first Christmas. Okay? There was more people at church than there were worshiping Jesus on that first Christmas. And so we sing... And we should. The glories of the angels on high and the shepherds tending their fields by night. And the wise men traveling all the way from these eastern nations to come and visit our Lord Jesus and to worship him and to give him his gifts. And his beautiful mother Mary giving birth as a virgin to this anointed son of God. And Joseph taking his role as a father seriously and protecting his family, even to the point of leading them down into Egypt because he knew that Jesus Christ would have been killed otherwise. So many good things happening in the darkness on Christmas. But what Jeremiah 31 verse 15 reminds us of in Jeremiah 31 in its context, and what it reminds us of in Matthew chapter 2 in its context, it's, it's like... Water in the, it's a dose of reality. Snap out of it, guys. This is the reality we're dealing with. And this is what Christ has come to deal with. Is this terrible scene. Jeremiah 31. Not only speaks to the morning turning into joy at the gathering of Israel, but it promises that such joy will climax in the new covenant which is established in the blood of Christ. See verse 33 of Jeremiah 31. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be their people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. Like, isn't that a glorious vision of reality? How'd you like to live in a city where you don't even need to tell people about Jesus Christ because everyone already believes in him? And, and you don't even need to teach people, don't, don't do this, do this. Because everybody wants to do what's right. This is the vision of Jeremiah 31. But Jeremiah 31 verse 15 brings us back down to the reality. So the question is, is how do you get from reality to the vision? Well, the vision starts to play out at the birth of Jesus Christ, but even in Matthew chapter 2, we're brought back to the reality. This is the world in which we live. Well, generally, scripturally speaking, mourning, the people of God mourning specifically, not general people mourning, but the people of God mourning leads to joy. It started, like, if you look at, if you look at the book of, of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah speaks to the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. And Nehemiah petitions the king. Jerusalem was in ruins. It's, this is after the time of Jeremiah. Jerusalem's in ruins. The people are coming back from the exile, which Jeremiah prophesied. And Nehemiah petitions a foreign king to let them go back and start rebuilding Jerusalem to restore it to its former glory. And, and Nehemiah successfully leads them in this venture with all of its obstacles to rebuild the kingdom of God 
in the ruins, the ash heap that Jerusalem became. How does Nehemiah begin? It begins with Nehemiah in a state of mourning over the state of Israel and the sins of his people. Good things begin when God's people begin to mourn the sin of the nation and their own sin in their hearts and the destruction that the sin of the nation is beginning or is, is, is wrecking in the streets of the nation. That's when the good things... Like, if, if you're looking out at the world today and you're in a state of mourning and you're almost to the point of pulling your hair out because you just cannot believe, like we call it a clown show, don't we, for a reason. You cannot believe what's going on. You wouldn't have even, you wouldn't have dreamed of this world being this way. And I, I don't even want to talk about some of the things that they do and that we see. In all levels of society, the schools, the families, businesses, and government, all levels of society, the corruption is so evident now and it's staring you right in the face. If that's bringing you to a point of grief and a point of mourning, that's a good thing because it ought to be driving you to your knees and that means that, you know what, there's better things yet to come. There's better things yet to come. We have the, Genesis, or we have the Jeremiah story where the people of God were walking or were in absolute misery and Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because he wept so much over Jerusalem. And then we have the Matthew story, which picks up on the Jeremiah story because it exposes the reality of the situation in which we live. But this points to another story in the Bible also that I just want to mention really briefly because it highlights the same, a similar situation. And it's the first book in the Bible in Genesis chapter 37. I'm going to look at very briefly to discuss this. And then I'm going to draw some points, some further points of application for you. But in, Ger in Genesis chapter 37, we have Rachel's son, Joseph. So you remember Rachel, that was Jacob's wife, it was his favorite wife. He made a big mistake, he married two women, but... That was his mistake to deal with. But he had his favorite of the two. It never works out when guys marry more than one wife, but it's just so you know. But he married two, and, and Rachel was his favorite, and it created some problems for him. And Rachel had two sons. The first was Joseph. The second was Benjamin. Benjamin. And Benjamin, or Benjamin, died, or when, she, when he was born, Rachel died. And so naturally... Those were Jacob's two favorite sons. Of his 12 sons were Joseph and Benjamin. And in verse 35 of Genesis 37, what's happened is, is Joseph's, or Jacob's sons turned on Joseph and sold him into slavery. And they came back to Joseph and told him that Joseph was dead. Or they came back to Jacob and told him that Joseph was dead. And coming back to Jacob and telling him that Joseph is dead... Jacob is brought to a great place of mourning. And this is what it says in verse 35 of chapter 37. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. Because his son's dead. But he refused to be comforted. See how Jeremiah is picking up on this? 
the son of Rachel, is perceived to be dead in the book of Genesis. And Jacob refuses to be comforted. And Jeremiah is picking it up in Jeremiah 31 and saying, Rachel is refusing to be comforted in this tragic situation in Jerusalem. And then Matthew's picking it up in Matthew chapter 2 and saying again, Rachel is refusing to be comforted in this tragic situation in Jerusalem. Well, it gets even worse for Jacob in the book of Genesis because eventually during a famine, Jacob had to send Benjamin into Egypt to find help during the famine from the Pharaoh. And he figured that when he was sending Benjamin, or he wondered if he was sending Benjamin into Egypt, it wasn't just Joseph who he'd lose, but it's Benjamin who he'd lose, both of Rachel's sons. So both of Rachel's sons went down into Egypt, and Jacob figured he might not see them ever again. Joseph, or Joseph's dead in his mind, and Benjamin's going down into Egypt, and it looks like Jacob's never going to see him again. So his two favorite sons are gone. Okay. Eventually, during a famine, as Jacob sends Benjamin into Egypt, there's an ironic twist. And all of a sudden, what we knew all along in Genesis, Jacob finds out and his sons find out. And that is that Joseph, who he thought was dead, has been appointed as Pharaoh's prime minister, and he rescues the family and reunites the family for the first time. They all live in harmony together in Egypt in the land of Goshen. So what happens there? Is the, is the people of God are restored, the people of God are reunited, and the people of God are provided for bountifully in Egypt when Jacob refused to be comforted because his mourning was so bitter. Jacob refusing to be comforted leads to Jacob's salvation and to the salvation of his people, in essence. So we have the Genesis story where we have the people refusing to be comforted. Jacob leads to joy in their reunion and God's provision. We have the Jeremiah story where Rachel refusing to be comforted. We're told in Jeremiah is going to lead to restoration and reunion and glory and then we have the Matthew story that I just read. And Matthew just leaves it there. It's really interesting how he just leaves that passage there and just kind of lets it hang in Matthew chapter 2. A voice was heard in Ramah, a weeping and loud man in lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted and really just leaves it there. But I think he's left it there because he's understanding that his original readers understood the context of that passage. It's the weeping and it's the mourning that leads to the joy of God's people, always. When God's people are brought to the point of weeping and mourning over the state of affairs in this death-stricken, sin-stricken world that is full of strife and full of misery, they're being pulled away from the realities of this world, their hearts are less tied to this world, and they're more apt to be got, caught up in the glorious visions of heaven and point to the hope that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. The Genesis story points to this, the Jeremiah story points to this, and the Matthew story points to this, because this joy is ultimately found in Jesus Christ promising by his shed blood the new covenant was being enacted, and Jeremiah was finally being fulfilled. The new covenant. What, what, what's the new covenant from Jeremiah? Well, everyone's sins are gonna be forgiven, 
The law of God is going to be lit, written on everyone's heart. And there's coming a world, there's coming a day when you're not even going to need to teach your neighbors about Jesus and about God's law because they're all going to love Christ anyway and walk in obedience to him by faith. This is the promise that is embedded in this passage of Rachel weeping. That's where it leads. It's interesting that, that Matthew chapter 2, it ends this way, or at least this story ends this way. And then you get up to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and he starts talking about the end of Jeremiah 31, which is the promise of the new covenant that is to come. The mourning always leads to joy. When God works, I've got a few points of application as I close. As we think about this tragic ending to the Christmas story, this is the way, look, this is what the world's seeing. There's only a few people that really believe in the vision of Jesus Christ being, the, the, the reality of Jesus Christ being born. The world's seeing the weeping. That's, that's the common experience of man in Bethlehem, is the weeping. When God works in power, Satan retaliates with venom. We see that in the Christmas story for sure. Satan was going to have, he wanted to have his way, so he's going to make sure this Christ child is snuffed out. However, although Satan works with venom, after our greatest losses and sorrows, God works in his greatest ways. The weeping and the sorrow leads to joy. Because as, as, it, as it just looks like Satan's having his way, and it looks like he's getting his way with all of the darkness and all of the misery. It's at that point that God is starting to do something in the secret. And there's heavenly forces at play that you can't see. And he's preparing you something for, for greatness, for glory, for the goodness and sweetness of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And the greatest sorrows, by the way, because of this truth that we see repeated again and again on the pages of Scripture, the greatest sorrows ought to give us is believers. This is available for believers. If you're an unbeliever, this isn't available for you. Come to Christ and it will be available for you. But for the believers, the greatest sorrows ought to give us our greatest hope because our greatest sorrows are often Satan's reaction to the great gifts that have come to us from God and because they often precede an even greater gift from God. It's through the sorrows and the misery that God is doing something glorious underneath it all. And you know, I woke up this Christmas morning, left the house, sun was just coming out, and I noted the beauty of the snow across the landscape. It painted all the trees, painted the front of my house even, right, with all the wind that we had. The freshly blue sky, which we had over our home this morning, but that wouldn't have come without a wicked storm. And often the most vicious storms bring the most beautiful blessings. Rachel refusing to be comforted is a precursor to the glory of the new covenant. Morning comes and then joy comes. Those who sow with tears will reap with shouts of joy. Blessed are those who mourn. For those, for they shall be comforted.